Teenagers. I'm James Schoen. And I'm James Certin. Conversation, expertise and advice on the world and well-being of our teenagers. Hello and welcome to Talking Teenagers. This, uh, today we are, we're talking to Joe Emerson. We're very lucky who is a, a, an uber, um, I think we'd use that word, um, confidence coach. Um, so hello and welcome, uh, Joe. Hi, James. Thank you. That's, um, that's a, an introduction and a half, that one. Thank you. <laughs> I wonder, Joe, if you can tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, of course. Um, I'm a mum of three daughters, two of whom are teenagers, and then I've got two stepsons, one who's a teenager. And in my work, I've been a specialist confidence coach for the last nine coming up, 10 years. And I work uh, individually with people on building self-esteem and confidence. So I work helping people to, I suppose, communicate better with themselves and, and with each other. It strikes me when, when we talk about confidence, we can't talk about confidence without talking about fear. You know, in your experience working in this area, kind of what sorts of fears do people have and how are your approaches to, to each of them? Because I guess there's a lot, we're all afraid of different things, aren't we? Yeah. Well, there are some main fears I, I, I stumble across in my work. You're absolutely right. You cannot talk about confidence without talking about fear. Fear of failure in the eyes of other people fear of rejection, fear that I'm not good enough is a big one, fear of the future. They, they tend to be the, the main ones. And so often I find, and I have found with myself and with my clients, that when we're in fear, it's because we're trying to control an outcome. You know, when I'm trying to control what you think about me with my actions, I'm therefore far more worried about my PR than I am about, say, giving the truth in the moment. And so often that means I'm plugged into a voice of fear that says, unless I'm different to who I am, someone won't like me and then they'll reject me and then the future will be lonely. Whereas if I can learn to show up as who I am and speak my truth gently, usually people respond quite well to that because they're not being manipulated by my fear. 99.9% of the time, those things we're afraid of, rejection, uh, failure, not being good enough, the future are things that haven't happened and probably won't happen we're making up stories in our heads and so really my job as a coach is to help people a dig underneath the fear to see what the real fear is and it's usually about how they're being perceived or how things will happen in the future and so I'm challenging I suppose I'm, I'm digging with my clients underneath the fears but also challenging that that belief that I won't cope because how do you know like is that really true that you won't cope I was reading somewhere recently that on the whole, it's kind of been shown or proved that we overestimate how much success will mean to us and we underestimate um, how our ability to cope in times of stress and difficulty. I guess that's a really good message for, for teenagers because they, they're going up and down the whole time, aren't they, in terms of their fear and confidence. And I see with my own teenagers this fear of um, of not belonging, of not being part of the pack of being ridiculed publicly I, I you know I see that a lot yeah so your your central message is is be yourself and I'm just sort of recognizing having you know been a, a house parent at a school that you know there are some boys some young people who are very very different and feel very very different and you know I I really I really like that idea of be yourself but 
sometimes it's very difficult for someone to be themselves because they know that if they truly let go, they are truly very different. It's, I suppose be yourself is one of my core messages. My, I suppose my core, core, core message is challenge what your head is telling you because it's just a thought and usually it's lying. We know we've got the first thought and then there's a the second thought and like, okay, that, that was the first thought. What, what's the second thought? But and if you're, speaking to a, if you're speaking to a young person and they're thinking and they can recognise what they're thinking, how do you teach them to counter it? So I believe so this sort of ties in with what we were saying about be yourself, because I believe there is a kind of a core true person inside all of us. And then there's our fearful self. And when we are driven by, rooted in and driven by our fearful self, we tend to feel that we don't know who we are and that we're living inauthentic lives and we're very, 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 very scared of what people will think and how we'll be judged. And so that's I help people to work that out by sort of asking them where that voice lives in their bodies and usually not always but usually you will find that it's all in my in my book um you usually find that voice knocking around the head area sometimes it's that critical voice and it is shoulding all over you as tony robbins says so it's saying you should have done this you shouldn't have done that it's also shooting all over everyone else they shouldn't be wearing that who do they think they are he shouldn't have driven that close to me etc etc so it's busy judging you, narrating your life back to you and judging everyone else. And, it, and it's doing so in a very critical way. However, we've also, all of us, got that authentic, wiser self. And again, I say to people, you know, where if, if for example, you saw a young child get, say, knocked down by, knocked over by a bike and they were in the road and they were scared and slightly hurt and they, mum and dad were nowhere to be found, what would you do? And everyone will always say, you know, you know anyone teenager old slightly younger child elderly person would say well I would immediately scoop down make sure they were warm hold them if they were okay with that and say it's all right it's okay you know what do you need right now can I get you a warm drink mum is I'm sure mum and dad are on their way you know do you where are you hurting they would tend to that person and if, if, and if the child's going, it's going to happen again, it's going to happen again, you'd be saying, no, 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 it's all right. You know, there are, we've, it, you're okay. I've pulled you up the road, you're safe. Well, if we've got that wise voice and that kind voice to talk to another human being, we can use it on ourselves. So again, I say to people, okay, where, where's that voice about you? And that's usually in your, the bottom of your tummy. Some people find that slightly outside of themselves, back of the head sometimes. Okay, what would that voice say to the critical thought you've just been believing about yourself? So, for example, I'm not good enough, critical thought. What would, what would your wise self say? Now, some people don't find that very easy and they say, oh, well, my wise voice would say, well, who am I to judge whether I'm good enough or not? But some people really struggle to find what their wise voice would say. And then it's really easy. I say, what's the opposite thought of I'm not good enough? Well, the opposite thought is I am good enough. Or other people aren't good enough or, well, I don't know what good enough is, so why am I even worrying? And as soon as you can slip into the opposite thought, you create some space between you and that fear, that critical voice, and then it's down to you. Am I going to choose to believe the first one or the second one? And every time we choose, even for five minutes, to think, I'm good enough, I'm good enough, I'm good enough, slowly but surely, that we, I suppose we ignite that wisdom inside of us, that spirit, that 
kindness, we ignite it. And then the more we practice this work, the stronger it becomes. It's just like a muscle. You mentioned um, FOMO, fear of missing out, which is so prevalent yeah. in teenagers. Oh, yeah. And whilst I have I, it too. <laughs> yeah, I guess we all do, don't we? What you've just been articulating there, it's, it's hard, isn't it, when you're trying to say something like that to a teenager who feels outside of a particular group of friends they want to be in with, because they're going to be saying, but, you know, I'm not, I'm not likeable because I'm not in that group. So how do you get people to overcome that when they're sort of saying to you that the evidence is that I'm not popular, you know, just telling myself, I'm, I'm being the sort of slightly cynical voice here, but just telling myself I'm popular won't lead to, you know, an increase in my confidence. No, and I'm not asking people to kind of lie to themselves. I suppose, you know, if someone's, if someone's wor- you know, worried about, you know, what other people think and, you know, I'm not popular, the questioning then is around, well, you know, what would it take for you? What, which parts of yourself would you have to deny in order to belong to that group? And how, how do you feel when you're, when you're shaving off bits of yourself in order to belong? How does that leave you feeling? And so often there are people, I've, I've worked with young people on this and, and, and actually people in their sort of 20s trying to find their way in work. And they say, I feel awful. I don't make good decisions. Okay, so, what's your, so when you're being authentic, then what happens? Well, I've probably got less people to hang around with, but the ones who I do hang around with are okay with who I am. And the fastest way to lose your confidence is to pretend to be someone you're not or to shave off bits of yourself in order to belong to a group of people who have decided we have to be a certain way in order to be popular and to belong. And it's a lie that we need to belong to a big group. And I, like, it's hard as teenagers. It's the, it's, it's the soup they swim in, right? It's tough, but, you know, it, it's, it's so much more nourishing to have one good friend than to be lonely in a crowd. And the other thing is, I think, it's so easy at any stage of our lives to look at a group of people, a bit like looking at the Asda Christmas advert, right? We look and go, oh, my Christmas doesn't look like that. There must be something wrong with me because it's not all joyous and wonderful and granddad's half asleep from drinking too much sherry and the kids are running around and everyone's laughing. You know, Christmas is a bit up and down in most houses. But we'll look at that and go, hmm. How I feel on the inside does not look how that looks on the outside. You know, it's just a flipping advert. We all know that Christmas is lovely and stressful and a bit weird and everyone looks forward to it and then they're glad when it's over. Like, why do we put ourselves through it? And yet we wouldn't be without it. It's just this weird thing we do. But in the same way, I think when you're, you know, feeling on your own at school or feeling like you're not in the, I mean, my 11-year-old struggles with this, you know, you're not in the biggest, most popular crowd. We're making up a story that to be in that crowd is amazing and all my problems are going to be over if I'm inside that crowd and everyone in there is approving of me. The reality would be very different if you got in there. You'd get in there and immediately think, oh my gosh, right, now I've got to do X, Y and Z in order to stay here. I'd be worried about getting kicked out. I can't be myself. So it's not what it looks like. It's very tiring, isn't it, as well? Really tiring, really tiring really tiring so it's that voice that you were mentioning earlier about you should you should you should is there a kind of phraseology that you can combat that with well when I was coach training um we were encouraged to um replace the word should with could I can and I am there we go there we are yeah but you see it's interesting because I should is very loaded and comes with a whole load of judgment 
I could opens us up, right? Yeah, I should be thinner, or I could be thinner if I choose to be, as a silly example, or I should run a marathon. Well, I could run a marathon if I'm willing to put the hours in. I haven't got a dodgy knee, which I had from a half marathon years ago. But, you know, there are, you know, and it's just, it's more open. Uh, Listen, the language we use is so important and so powerful, which is why I spend so much time working with people on the language they're entertaining in their heads, because it's a a real deal breaker. So thinking about um, parents, Joe, and, you know, what what would be the sort of priorities, you know, recognising that a lot of parents that are listening you know, find themselves in some fairly stressful situations with their with their children. What 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 you know? If I was to ask you to sort of simplify, what would be the 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 absolute must dos um, and maybe the absolute mustn't dos? I need to say I need to sort of frame this by saying that you know my parenting is a work in progress, like everyone else's. You know. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Um, but I, you know, I have been a mum now for 16 years and a stepmom. And I used to foster teenagers, actually. I fostered teenagers for six years. So I suppose I have, I've probably collected quite a lot of experience with young people. The bottom line with children, and I learned this particularly with my foster kids who were sort of between the ages of 15 and 19, and they just wanted to belong. And the power of saying to someone, no matter what you do or say, you belong. I, you don't have to think a certain way to belong to us. You don't have to do a certain job to belong to this family. You don't have to believe a certain religion. You just belong because you belong, because we love you, end of. That's incredibly powerful for children, whether they've been fostered, adopted, born, uh, you know, born naturally, whatever. And I think one of the mistakes we can make as parents is to try and overlay our frame of the world and what success looks like onto our children. And I think we do them a massive disservice. I somehow have always known as a mum that my job has been to grow an adult. So that's always been my kind of uh, North Star is, is, is what I'm saying or doing or correcting here or whatever going to help her in her journey to becoming an adult? Am I giving her enough freedom, enough space to make her own mistakes? I, I see a lot of children, in my, or young people in my coaching practice who are recovering from overbearing parenting, if I'm honest. What, what I mean is, you know, you must go to university, you must get a good degree, you must get really high grades, you must be in a popular group of people, you must be good at sport. This is what we believe in this family. We believe Trump's awful and we believe um, the Pope's amazing or, you know, whatever. And if you don't believe that, you're sort of slightly edged out of family conversations. That's the worst thing we can do. It's a bit like um, that should and the could that you were talking about. You know, it's that, that overbearing nature is you should do this, you should be getting these grades, you should be making the most of this. Whereas actually a better way to look at it be, would be to sit down and say, what do you want to do? You could do this, you could do that. These are your possibilities. What, what, where does your heart stay, you kind of thing? So someone I was a mum, an early mum with, she had a little boy at the same time as I had a little girl, said to me, I just can't wait for him to show me who he is. And I thought, yeah, I love that. Like, 
as parents, we're just waiting for our children to show us who they are. We provide healthy soil for them to grow in. Now, that doesn't mean we don't correct behavior. If one, if my middle child wallops my younger one, which believe me happens, unfortunately, you know, her phone will be taken off. You know, there are consequences for crappy behavior. Of course there are, because children also need to feel safe. And I suppose that's my second point. It's about containment. We all need to feel contained, held, safe. And with children, we do that, I think, with boundaries and, and consequences. And again, that's not saying who you should be, but it is saying that sort of behavior is not cool. And, you know, and I'm, I'm not living in a house where, you know, we, we, we swear at each other, for example. I'm not, I'm sorry, that's just not how it, how it works here. You want to go and swear outside, that's up to you, but not here. But also, I think with children, it's about... I do this a lot with my girls. I'll say to them, you know, is that thought you've been believing true? Is that really true? Oh, I'm not good enough. I only got 65%. It's not good enough. You know, what, what did you want? What would you like next time? You know, um, what does your teacher say? Is this the first time you've ever done this sort of test? Okay, 65% doesn't feel good enough for you. How, how, what would you like to get next time? How can I help you get there? Rather than going, yeah, no, it's not good enough. Yeah, it's that comparison again, isn't it, with that sort of other people are getting this and I'm only getting that, whereas yeah. that might be perfectly okay. Yeah. But I think that I suppose the the overarching thing with being a parent is I suppose I've just I've wanted my girls to see my vulnerability. I've wanted them to see that, you know, I make mistakes and I can own making those mistakes and there have been times when I've had to go to them and say you know I'm really sorry I lost my temper I'm really sorry I shouldn't have said that and there's nothing like someone apologizing to you to boost your self-esteem because as a child you think gosh I'm valuable enough to be apologized to and I've made it very easy for them to apologize you know relationships are all about rupture and repair you know, this myth that they've got to be like perfect all the way through and no one ever having an argument is, is you know it's a limiting belief and it it cripples a lot of us because most relationships are fine and then you hit a, a blip and there's a bit of a rupture and then you fix it and you move on and somebody a very wise counselor said to me years and years and years ago that scarred skin is stronger than unbroken skin and if we look at our relationships like that if they've been allowed to heal and there's a scar they're often a stronger relationship than the ones where everyone's pretending everything's fine, we brush it all under the carpet. Growing up, knowing that you're not being told something and being told, no, 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 you've been told everything, kind of creates a real split in you and because you, you sort of lose trust in yourself. And by the time I did hear the truth, I was already on this particular journey and, and it's helped me loads. But I suppose I've always wanted my kids to grow up with the truth. I think they can handle more truth than we and we think they can. I'm not a believer in hiding stuff from them. Being truthful and, and yeah. being authentic is sometimes being your best self to them, isn't it? And creating that, as you say, that vulnerable environment and healthy environment is so, so important. But not expecting them to fix it for you, you know, but just being on, oh, this is, I'm, mum's having a difficult time, she's going through a process, though. she just found out dad's not her dad, it's quite tough, but I'll be back, just give me a week. I just wondered in terms of like dealing with people, I mean, I, I'm thinking, again, personally here but in terms of disclosure my my eldest child tells us absolutely everything which is uh, good but challenging in its own way my my youngest child 
it's quite a lot harder to work out what his inner voice is saying to him. How, how do you deal particularly with the, the sort of low disclosing person? I've got um, a low discloser and I just say to her all the time, I'm here if ever you want to talk. Usually she's like, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. Once or twice, and probably only once, she's very self-contained. So I sort of trust that she's all right. Once or twice, I've had to sit her down and say, you're not leaving here until you tell me what's going on because I know something's going on and I can see it's burdening you. And if you, if you can't tell me, go and tell one of your sisters, but you need to share this. And at that point, there's normally been a big load of tears and, a, and she just needed. So I suppose I've been going on instinct. Occasionally, and this isn't anything I've designed, this is just something I've sort of landed at by default. She and I, something's come up in you know, my life and I've been nattering to them about it over dinner. And then she'll come to me and say, oh, this, this thing's happened at school. And, and, and then she'll talk and you think, gosh, it was me being vulnerable earlier on. It's just opened this space for her to feel safe enough to come and... Um, but I, don't, I wouldn't use that in a manipulative way. I wouldn't, you know, make, make up a trauma so that... But it, it sort of happened, you know, it has happened naturally. And they also know that there are certain... I have said there are certain things you have to tell me. So if you know of one of... If you or one of your friends is being abused physically, sexually or emotionally, you have to tell me. So I've sort of given them parameters around which, you know, what's not okay for a child to hold on their own. In my mind, uh, we worked out with, I can't remember if I said this in the podcast before, but um, the low disclosure, he's quite happy talking under a duvet. It's the sort of eye-to-eye contact. He pops something under your head and, and, and do it that way, and that's where you get a little bit of sort of intimacy all of its own, but a slightly surreal experience at the same time. <laughs> Isn't that lovely, though, that you've just carved out that way to... It's often, often it'll be over an activity, won't it? Like, oh, come and, you know, come and cook the dinner with me, Eva, for example, you know, and you're chopping vegetables and, you know, this little thing will pop out and you think, ah, oh, that's what's been troubling you. Okay. Are you all right about that? Yeah, no, I'm fine now. I've moved off, moved off. It's about creating little bits of opportunity, but I think trusting as well that in the relationship enough to know that you are their safe place and they will come if they need to. You know, nothing's off the table. I like that idea of safe place and just being there because actually when they know they've got that place, of course, you can build confidence on that, but you can't feel confident if you don't feel safe. So actually we're trying to build a container on which they can build fledgling steps of their kind of like adult life and they'll be able to put more solid steps on something that feels safe and concrete underneath them as opposed to flimsy. One of one of the um, in your email before this podcast, you were asking me about you know one of the you may be coming onto this, but it's just occurred to me now. So some of the sort of big differences between a childhood in the nineteen seventies and eighties compared to a childhood now, and and the thing I made a note about is risk. That you see, I think I was encouraged to take so many more risks as a kid than we possibly allow our children to now. I mean, for example, I had a, a paper around age ten. I get up really early in the morning, it would be dark in winter, go and get the papers, cycle around the area, chucking them through various letterboxes. But I loved that. I suppose that's independence, but also to risk. Because I was thinking today, I would not let any of my daughter, well, maybe my 16-year-old, but I wouldn't let my 13 or 11-year-old out in the dark on their own, traipsing around the local area. Now, it's it's no 
more dangerous my local area than than the one I grew up in and I never came to any harm like that but they have they have said that young people are much more risk averse now aren't they well yeah because we're not letting them take well I was going to say the interesting thing is it comes back to fear again doesn't it and it actually comes back to parental fear uh, and actually their attitude to risk in the way that you're articulating it is connected to our own um, parental fear and actually there's a conversation we have to have with ourselves there that says we're going to have to allow them to go and do these things I mean my, my my eldest went off on her gap year last year and you know was out of contact for 10 weeks in South America and if she hadn't and actually frankly if we hadn't given her steps towards greater freedom and independence that would have been really hard on both of us I think so there is a sort of a process you should be going through with your kids where I think you made it said it earlier actually where you're slightly loosening the reins and allowing them to go and do things um, it's not easy is it but it's not easy but it's also about allowing them to fail it's interesting um Joe, how the um the school system is set up and there are certain children and you we all probably know if we've got a child like that you think it's going to be quite a bruising journey um, you know, maybe you're academically less able and you're not this, you're not that. You know, you're about confidence and you know that it's going to be a very confident, sapping journey. What would be your sort of advice to parents if that is the case? Well, my advice to parents, first, first of all, would be to work on their attachment to the outcome their child of, of their child. And that sounds like a really strange thing to say, but so often we can overlay our own fears and our own feelings of rejection or failure or whatever onto our children. And then it becomes extremely manifest. So we can be assuming our children are having a worse time or that they won't cope because we think we wouldn't have coped or we had a bad time at school and we're already, we've all decided that that's what's happening. So there needs to be, and this is, I suppose, a bit of work on codependency. There needs to be a little bit of work done on where you as the parent stop and where your child begins. And that sounds really tough, but we can make it worse if we're overly invested in our child's feelings. Am I making sense here? Yes, you are, yeah. Um, because, you know, but also I think the second thing is, is, to, is to say to ourselves, they can cope, they will cope. I can trust my child to find a way. And I will support them in finding a way rather than just coming up with solutions all of the time is to think no my job is to be a cheerleader not a manager I think those two things would help but then I would be working with my child on coming up with strategies all of the time and setting different success metrics because you know the school system is very two-dimensional very I mean it's a bit better than when we were at school but not a lot I don't think you know, success looks like this and failure looks like this and, and that's that. So I would be very much working with my child and hopefully the school on creating different success metrics. And my eldest certainly um, was just found maths really tricky. I think a lot of people do. I know I did. And she was put into the bottom set and was really upset about it, like really quite like they think I'm thick. And we had a long talk about it and we reframed it. And I said, you know, I, do you want to be a mathematician or a physicist? No, 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 I don't want to do any of that. Okay, so you're just going to need basic maths to kind of, you know, run a small business or do some accounting in a job and run a, run a home budget, etc. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm going to need. Okay, in that case, what does success look like? 
well, I never want to look at maths again once I'm 16. Okay, in that case, let's just get you past. I suppose that release of pressure, of I've got to be really good at maths, and that change to, I've just got to get the four, a pass, took the pressure off. And she was just like, you know, so I'm in the bottom set for maths because actually this is going to get me what I need. And, and now she's doing A-levels in psychology, drama and philosophy. You know, she's, she's more sort of right brain, if you like. So maths was never going to, you know, so, so I suppose with a parent, it's about, you know, and success could be, you know, you went to school today and you stayed all day. There are some kids who find school so unbearable that the first success is, you know, you went to school you did the whole day, you came home. Or success is, you know, all your homework's gone in on time this week. You know, whether they get, you know, stars for it or, you know, black marks or whatever, it's gone in, homework's gone in. But I don't deny that for a lot of children, it's blimmin' tough. Yeah, I guess it's also reframing learning beyond just academics and yeah, right. or even just sport or drama whatever it is but actually reframing it around issues like confidence resilience friendship um you know happiness and, and actually seeing seeing those things as being more important really than than all of the other bits and pieces yeah but we have to believe that first and then communicate it i think to our to our kids no one size fits all but that goes back to that be yourself thing, you see. I think if children are trying to be someone they're not and fit a certain mould, the world misses out. When we plug children into their inherent goodness, what they have been put on this earth to do, then everyone wins. Everyone wins. That strikes me as a, a wonderful end point for this podcast, actually, in mm. terms of, uh, you know, bottom line. And you're so right about that. Joey, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. Really good. I've actually written a lot of notes myself from some of the pearls that you've come up with, Joe. Thank you. Bless you. Thank you for having me. It's been lovely. You've been listening to Talking Teenagers. Music has been by Rue Paynes. Editing by George Purvis and James Certin. For more information about I Can and I Am Charity, who provide presentations and resources and help build self-confidence in young people, visit their website at icaniam.com. Be your soul.